I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Deidre Heakin is on the show today. She is an author and restaurateur. She wrote Libation, A Bitter Alchemy, and she also runs the restaurant Pane Salute uh, in Woodstock, Vermont, with her husband. Really interesting person that has uh, championed Italian spirits and wine really ahead of the game. Uh, made some travels to Italy before other people were doing it, started to write things down often before other people got into it, and has some really interesting things to say, doing a ton of great work in an area that maybe doesn't get a ton of attention as she is in rural Vermont. Deidre Heakin on the show today from Woodstock, Vermont. Hello, how are you? I am good, thank you. Nice to have you here. Lovely to be here. It's an honor. So you are doing many things, have done many things, but maybe we could start at kind of uh, the beginning of how things started to get going, maybe 91, 92, when you were in Italy? Yes. Um, yeah, that was um, right after my husband and I got married, uh, literally the day after we flew on one-way tickets to Italy. And uh, we actually ended up going there not for food and wine-related reasons yet. Uh, we had been invited to start a dance company. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're both, uh, or we were both dancers and choreographers and uh, had gone over to do that. And we did do that. And we uh, worked in a friend's piano bar and we taught English and uh, had an amazing experience eating and drinking very well. Um, just as, as the happenstance, just because that's yeah, part of the culture. Just as that's part of the culture. And that experience in that, that first year that we were there is what really sort of turned our heads around uh, to thinking about doing something crazy like opening a restaurant. And uh, Because you kind of hadn't come up with the idea of food and wine, you'd come up more as a writer, like creative writing. Right? Exactly. I was um, starting to write at the time. Um, as I mentioned, we were dancing. Um, we certainly loved food and wine, and Caleb had already started uh, to kind of be the cook between us. Um, but we hadn't thought of it as a career path or something that we would pursue um, as significantly as, as we have. And it was really, you know, those day-to-day -day experiences of eating in people's homes, um, eating in little tiny restaurants on the side of the road, um, going to our little local coffee bar, uh, shopping for food daily. That uh, had a really important um, 
impact on us, you know, being able to provision for what you were going to cook that day. Because we weren't really sort of doing that yet here in the States. Um, and it's a little time. different there. I mean, you you weren't going to the one-stop supermarket in Italy. You were right. visiting with the fishmonger and that's seeing right. what he had to say and then going over to the salumi store. Exactly. And that's how we picked up the language, um, how we picked up our initial recipes. Um, you know, it was really, it was a remarkable, it was a remarkable experience. And it has fed us, um, you know, that was 20 some odd years ago, um, that has continued to feed us um, that initial first year. And initial Ex- particular experiences that we had. Um, and I would say that there there is one that I can kind of trace back uh, that I, I still return to again and again as a memory. And it was very shortly after we had arrived there. Um, we were living with our friend who owned the piano bar, sharing an apartment with him, and his family kind of adopted us. And they had this wonderful little tiny restaurant that was only open on Friday and Saturday nights in uh, Circolo Recreativo, which is like a little social club in this tiny village in Tuscany. And um, they adopted us, essentially. And we went for a meal there on All Saints Day. And it was my first experience of having a, a meal that took all day long. We started out with tons of antipasti. We had two pastas. There was fish. There were there was porchetta. There were little roasted birds, uh, pastry to finish. Um, and we drank all the while uh, this great little local wine that was just bottled in um, old uh, San Pellegrino bottles with beer caps on top. You know, nothing fancy, um, but totally delicious and totally appropriate for the meal. And after that big meal, which was... A big experience in and of itself. We took a little siesta, and then we went out for a walk. And we went through the little vineyard that had supplied the wine. Um, we ate grapes that had been left on the vine after harvest um, off the vine. We ate uh, figs off of fig trees that were growing in the wild. We ate rose hips. We uh, collected mushrooms. And it was just, it, it was a moment for me that um, brought into perspective, n- not at the time, but in hindsight, brought into perspective that uh, relationship between landscape and the table. And we talk a lot about, you know, farm to table. Uh, now we do, but in Yes, not at the maybe. time we didn't, but now we do. And, and it also brings to mind that idea of, you know, it's farm to glass. You know, not only is it farm to plate, but it's farm to glass. And that was just a really, um, you know, I think about that experience often. And Caleb started to get more involved in, Caleb, your husband, started yeah. to get more involved with bread. Uh, yes, he did. In fact, um, I mean, we knew after that experience and we returned stateside, we knew that we wanted to open the little restaurant that we have now, um, but we needed, we didn't have the experience to do that. And Caleb had always been interested in bread, especially after that time in Italy. And we thought, okay, what we'll do first is we'll open a bakery. That seems like a lower threshold. We were both working uh, for a local baker in Vermont at the time, uh, and they were giving us lots of advice and support. So we went back to Italy so he could apprentice with a baker um, that we knew through friends of friends and uh, got that education that uh, he wanted for for at least the bread and the pastry. And we, we started with that. 
and then went on from there. And it sort of developed more into a restaurant. Like you added restaurant service and dinner and lunch. Yeah. And then you kind of, how did it evolve over the years? Yeah, it evolved pretty quickly. I mean, we had the bakery and um, we did kind of a, um, a cafe-style lunch from the get-go. And this is like 95, 96? This is 96. We opened in the fall of 96. So by by actually by the summer of 97, we had started to do um, a little seasonal dinner service on the weekends um, that we would just do for summer. And uh, by the end of 97, we were doing a full-service lunch. Um, so but at that point, you know, starting to bring in wine, um, starting to develop a wine list, and then by, I mean, we've been open 16 years, so by about the fifth year, we had all pistons firing. We had the bakery, we had full lunch service, and we were doing dinner three or four nights a week, I think. And um, Was that a lot for two people to have on our plate? It was a lot. Um, we certainly had some great staff that was helping us do those things, but we were all working doubles, um, if not triples, and it was crazy. Um it was a good experience and good to go through, but we we realized we needed to pare back, um, and and we wanted to focus on the dinner element because that had been the original plan. So we retired the bakery, and then about a year later, we retired lunch and just focused on dinner. So we've been doing dinner only for the past, I'd say, eight years. But in that kind of time, as you um, broke away from some of the lunch service, you also did more work in the garden? Yes. Um, it was right around that same time that we got interested in doing uh, some more of our own gardening. And we started out simply with herbs and with greens um, because for Caleb's menu, uh, he he adores the bitter greens of Italy. And um, nobody else was growing those They were things. hard to get they, here. They were hard to get here. And nobody else was certainly growing them locally. And we were we were even at that point really trying to focus on, from the beginning, focus on our local purveyors who was doing what locally. So he decided to start growing things like radicchio and escarole um, and frise. And so we started out just with that. And Because um, bitter is a big component of Italian cuisine. It and if is. it's not there, you're almost missing it. That's right. A big exactly. Exactly. It's a huge component. Part of the construction. And uh, so, yeah, we started with that and then um, fell in love with that and started to develop our, uh, we have a little farm, it's about eight acres, and started to, vet, to develop that property more as a working farm and adding more and more gardens. Uh, we put in a little orchard. Um, when we first put in the orchard, we knew we wanted to use the apples for cooking. I had no idea that I would make cider, <laughs> hard cider eventually from that. Um, but you were planting things with the idea that they were going to be ingredients to the recipe. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And so not just picking things and being like, we could make a recipe out of this, but actually planting. Yeah. Ahead planting, of time. P- planting specific varieties of specific kinds of vegetables that, um, we couldn't find around us. So even though we still wanted to support some of the local farming, um, we knew that we had niche ingredients that uh, that we could do for the restaurant. And we're probably doing about 80%, I think, of our own produce um, at this juncture. Um, and even in the winter, we have a winter greenhouse, and, and we really focus on the greens um, during the winter because you can do that. Have you found the climate to be hospitable to what you're trying to do in Vermont in terms of the different... Yeah, I mean, the thing about climate is that as long as you find the right varietal, um, it 
That's that's what that's the key, um, because there are lots of cold hardy varietals in. Um, I mean, certainly radicchios and the escaroles and those things, they love cooler weather. Um, so they do quite well for us. And in the summertime, Vermont gets quite hot. So we can grow things like great tomatoes and eggplant and um, root vegetables are great in our climate. Um, you know, the only thing... The only thing we found that we can't grow are olive trees. I see. Um, well, that's true in the Piemonte too. You can't. Exactly. Can't, exactly. You know, nobody makes olive and oil there. We haven't tried fig trees yet. Um, you know, going back to that for that experience, walking out in the countryside eating figs off the tree, we would love to do that. And we've thought about um, overwintering it in our greenhouse because um, we know some other folks who have been able to do that. And there's a, a varietal that's uh, um, apparently will work well for us. Uh, so that's sort of next on the list to try, to try the fig. But one of the things that seems interesting is that schedule-wise in Vermont, you're able to kind of work with it seasonally, not always be open as a restaurant, and then use that time to travel. That's true. Um, where we are in Woodstock, um, we have a great local community, but we also have a good um, traveler community uh, or tourist community. Are um, people there for skiing? Or They're there for skiing. They come in the fall to see the leaves. Mm. Um, they come all year long to see the architecture. The village has um, really beautiful architecture, and the town has been very well kept. Um, there's actually a Rockefeller property and a national park there. I didn't realize um, that. Yeah, um, the Billings Farm Museum. And the Billings Farm is a is a Rockefeller property, and uh, they bequeathed that to the um, United States Park uh, system. Uh, so we have this beautiful park, and a lot of people come for those things. And of course, now more and more um, with the food culture that's developed in Vermont, people are also coming for food, um, not only you know to to Woodstock or that area for restaurants, but you know we've got some great spots all over the state. It's a big um, dairy area too, right? Yeah, and we have a, a big cheese um, uh, program happening. Um, lots of beautiful artisanal cheeses that have been happening over the last fifteen twenty years in Vermont, and uh, there's a cheese trail that people can follow and, um, you know, all the local restaurants certainly serve the local cheeses and, um, you know, they're all done in a European, mostly in a European tradition. Um, so yeah, it's pretty, pretty cool. Um, so yeah, to get back on track to your question about seasonality, even though there's good all year round traffic, um, there are these sort of dips and dives in both November and April. And for us, because we do, um, a large amount of the work by ourselves. We have a really, really small staff to keep going and doing what we're doing. We knew that um, we needed to be able to have some built-in time off. Otherwise, we would just burn out. Burn out. Um, which is typical for um, people in, in our line of work. So um, in both November and April, we take those months off. And one of those months, we always try and get back to Italy um, the other month, we may get back to Italy or we may go somewhere else. Um, we do a lot of traveling in France. Um, we've started to do, um, you know, some Austria and Hungary and the eastern part of Italy. Um, we've done a little bit in South America. We do some domestic stuff. Um, but also more and more, we're finding we need more time to be at the farm um, with that seasonality. You know, we need to be planting certain things in April and um, closing up certain things in November. So um, it's, a, it's a blend now of the travel and the farm work on yeah. those times off. And, uh, and along the way, you got some writing done. You wrote 
a, a book of recipes? And- yes. Um, fairly early on in uh, the restaurant and bakery, um, Caleb and I did a book together called In Late Winter, We Had Pears. Uh, that's a combination of recipes written by him and essays written by me um, about our time in Italy um, with food and wine and our time in Vermont with the restaurant. And then in 2009, I did. I had been writing essays about wine and spirits and uh, had enough at that point to collect them into a book. And that kind of based out. on your travels, you wrote yeah. different essays and then you kind of... Yeah, kinda... based on my travels. And um, I was also finding that uh, writing about food and uh, or uh, wine and spirits was helping me to um, kind of figure out the direction that I was going with my work and wine and spirits. Because you were making wine at the time. Um, I had just, when I was working on that book, I had just kind of started uh, to make wine. I wasn't making wine commercially. I was making it uh, for myself, uh, mostly as an educational component. And You kind of wanted to learn more about the connoisseurship of wine through the hands-on exactly, making it. Exactly. Um, and you know, because of my experience, too, as a dancer, I believe in that sort of doing something physically. Getting physically involved you know, with the, the, the subject. The visceral um, aspect of it. So um, I, I definitely wanted to do it from that perspective. And I was also, um, I was starting to make uh, infusions, rosolio, and playing around with amaro. And, and what is rosolio? Rosolio is um, a liqueur that is made in Italy. Um, you find it most typically in the south, in Sicily and okay, southern Sicily. Italy. And that was had been my introduction to it. Um, and also really my introduction to amaro. And I, I really fell in love with um, those kinds of uh, spirits. Mm-hmm. And when I, I first started playing around with those, I didn't really know yet about the possibility of making wine in Vermont. And um, making wine, I mean, in general, uh, seemed so mystical to me at that time. Um, so, you know, working with the the spirits and making the liqueurs, you know, I think that was kind of my my gateway. <laughs> you felt more comfortable yeah, getting yeah, involved with those er- it, early on. It, exactly. And I knew that... Um, there was a tradition of some of that already in Vermont, um, historically. Like moonshine. Uh, like moonshine, exactly. Um, and doing uh, some infusions with ciders, you know, had been an historical thing that people had done, you know, over the past uh, few centuries. So um, that really interested me because I wanted to also do something local. But you um, wrote in your book, Libation, the second book you wrote about uh, El Carmes, uh, which yes. is a liqueur. You wrote yeah. about Padre Pepe, which yes. is a nocino. It's, and yeah. Neither of those are particularly easy to find in no. the States. And Rosolio is no. super hard to find in the States, yeah. so at least a good version of it. Exactly. So did you find almost kind of like the bitter greens, like you either had to make your own version or yeah. you were yeah. out of luck in Ex- terms of that? Exactly. And one of the things that I had wanted to do at the restaurant was... Um, we had gone to this great restaurant down in Calabria, um, which had been part of my eye-opening experience to Amaro and, and Rosolio. Because this is further in the south than it's, Tuscany yeah, or Umbria, exactly. which is where you were before. Exactly. And we had been doing a lot of traveling in the south. And we were spending some time in Calabria and gone to this wonderful restaurant that had um, a Rosolio tasting at wow. the end of the meal. All made in-house. Um, and it, you could do five or seven. And I, of course, chose seven. Were they all the same color rose or were they uh, different no. roses? No, Rosolio is um, is kind of a catch-all. I mean, definitely it, it connects to this idea for us of rose. Um, but Rosolio actually means um, 
uh, mornings do. It's like the um, kind of relates to the idea of aqua vita. Oh, okay, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, um, and in the Latin, rosolio is like the it means mornings do. Um, so life, water, water of life. Um, so you can make uh, a rosolio kind of out of anything. Um, as long as you have a good base spirit for it. So they had certainly a rose-infused um, rosolio, but they had mint, they had white pepper, they had saffron. Um, so it's like the Sinterb thing, but it's further yes. south. It's yes. like the ho- the homemade version exactly. that you'd associate with Abruzzo, and it exactly. could be completely different from house to house. Exactly, exactly. So um, that I thought was pretty cool, and I wanted to duplicate that. At the restaurant. So, you know, as you said, the only way to duplicate it was to actually make it because it was very difficult for us to get those things in Vermont. Um, you could find a few things here in New York, but, um, you know, for us to be able to serve them at the restaurant, we couldn't we couldn't work it that way. So um, we just started handcrafting our own. And Caleb got really interested in making the Nocino. Um, so he has sort of specialized in that. Which is a walnut. Which is a walnut liqueur. Liqueur. And uh, he does that, and then I do other, either you know, floral or herbal infusions, um, is sort of where I am with those. And what have you learned during that process? I mean, what works and what doesn't work when you're making your own house um, infusions? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think that I, I mean, I do it very intuitively. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of rely on my palate to tell me the what's going to work and the adjustment. So I'll you know I'll look to I'll look to food, I'll look to recipes, I'll look to, I'll look to wine, you know things that I taste in wine that I think are complementary uh ingredients mm-hmm. or flavors and I'll kind of approach it from that perspective. I also uh like trying to recreate historical recipes. I have a couple great books that are um collections of very very old Italian or French um, liqueur recipes, and I'll try and duplicate those and play with those kinds of flavors. Because again, those are no longer commercially available. That's right. So if That's you want right. to have an idea of what yeah. those people were drinking at that That's time, right. there's yeah. only really one way. That's right. Exactly. Do, do you find that some years are, hey, really good mint years, and you can make a great infusion for mint that year, and then the next year maybe didn't work out with the mint so much that year? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you do. It, it is a little bit like wine and that you look at the vintage and what's What's good and what's um, it, w- yeah, what looks great in the garden. Um, one of the things that I have also started doing um, is I mentioned a little bit about the ciders earlier. Um, is doing uh, these infused ciders or cider vermouth, and that's a joint project that I'm doing with Eden Ice Cider, which is another producer in Vermont, and they make a beautiful, beautiful ice cider. That, um, I think you have that on your wine list today, I do, right? I do. And it's available here in the city. Um, it's actually available It's available in California. It's available kind of all over the country now. It's um, taking off in a really nice way. Um, and our a- first, an ice cider is not served cold, but they freeze the apple? Or is that um, true? Ice or? cider is made, um, it is uh, a similar process to ice wine, but you can't freeze apples on the tree. I see. Like you can freeze grapes on the vine. They'll fall and they rot. So the way you make it is you essentially pick and press at the same time you would for regular hard cider. And you keep the juice in um, tanks that are formulated specifically for being kept outside. You keep it outside for the first part of the winter and you allow it to freeze, the juice to freeze. 
Then in January, you bring uh, those tanks into the cellar, allow them to come to cellar temperature, and the concentrate drops out of the ice, um, or the water and the concentrate separates, and that's what you pull off to ferment. So you're fermenting ice ciders in you know January through March. And when we got together to collaborate on the infusions, we decided to take the ice cider and ferment it completely dry, and then playing around with infusions. And the first, uh, we're doing a line of them, and the first one is called Orleans Herbal, and it's an, infu- an infusion with um, basil and anise hyssop, um, which are two things that grow really well in Vermont. And, and probably go well with the idea of a cider flavor. Yeah, yeah, they work beautifully together. And, you know, you can, we use it really as a vermouth, um, and that's sort of how we're, even though there's no wormwood, we're, we're sort of trying to explain it like it's a vermouth. Um, you can use it in a martini. You can use it in a Manhattan. We've been making a great Manhattan with it this winter. Um, you can use it straight over ice with a, a lime in Prosecco. I mean, it's just got all these great varied uses. Kind of like you might use Aperol or something exactly, like that. Exactly, exactly. Oh. Um, uh, and, and you were asking before about how I come up with the, the recipes for these things. I looked a little bit to Lillet as an inspiration for that particular um Which is an aromatized which wine, kind of wine. like exactly. a vermouth. Exactly. And so now we're working on the second one, um, which we're getting ready to lease, release sometime um, uh, in the early 2013, um, which is a bitter. It'll be an Orleans bitter. And, and my first uh, inspiration was Campari for that. Um, and then has sort of shifted a little bit to, to Fernet. So... Um, we'll be excited to have people taste that shortly. So in a way, it's kind of riffing on the standards, but in a more cottage way, like you yeah. might associate with Vermont yeah. in general. Exactly, exactly. Small batch, artisanal, all that kind of good stuff. And uh, you did get involved with making uh, wine as, as well as spirits? Yes, and that um, I, I did start to write about that in the book Libation. Um, libation is really kind of the the journey um, you know, sort of the education of my palate because I'm a completely uh, self-educated wine director. I never worked in, under another sommelier. Um, it's overrated. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. I think there's a me. lot to learn. I could learn a lot from you, Levy. Um, you know, so I'm completely self-taught and I wanted to kind of catalog what that development had been and and what that journey has been. Putting and, it on the page and yeah. seeing what you thought when you wrote it exactly. about what you've been doing. Exactly. And um, that journey led me to this project of making wine for myself. And at the same time, that was happening. Um, the Vermont as a wine region was starting to burgeon as well. And uh, those two things kind of came together and Caleb and I realized that we had um, a beautiful piece on our property that had good southeast-facing slope, um, good drainage, great air circulation, and could be a perfect spot for planting vines. And so we went out and started tasting other uh, wineries within Vermont and, you know, came across some, um, you know, good solid producers and felt like, okay, you know, there's some people making some nice wine here and there is an opportunity to, um, as we were following with the food, this idea of, you know, our local ingredients and growing our own ingredients, even for a very specific Italian menu, um, 
that, you know, we could start working with our own wine. And, and wine that would be about the landscape, wine that would be about the ingredients we can grow um, and meld with the food so that it would be, you know, this kind of 360 experience of what Vermont landscape has to offer. So the original thinking wasn't, hey, I'm going to make the greatest wine in the world. I'm going to make a world-beating best product. It was, I want to work through this process to learn about what it's like to make wine. And at the same time, I'd like to make something unique to where I am. Exactly, exactly. Um, because that is where I am. And, uh, you know, my goal is to be, um, I'm going to uh, copy one of my mentors here, a woman named Nicoletta Boca in the Piemonte. Um, you know, she says, all I want to do is be a good contadino. And I want to be a good farmer. Which is a farmer. Yeah. yeah. And I want to be a good farmer too. And, you know, I'm I'm in the camp that believes that, you know, good wine is made in the vineyard. So if I'm growing good fruit and growing good wine, then it may not be, um, I mean, I think it can be really interesting, uh, wonderful wine that goes with the food that we make, the cheeses that are made in Vermont. Um, you know, I think it's uh, it's been a great experiment so far. What are the different wines that you make? Because you make a couple. Few. I do, I do. And um, each year I kind of add on a little bit because um, it's all an experiment. Um, my viticulture is experimental um, in that it's very old-fashioned, um, but experimental in terms of how we can grow things uh, viticulturally in Vermont because we are a cold region. Um, so I started out, my first vintage was in 2010, and I made two wines. I made a, a white, um, fairly traditional, uh, from a grape called La Crescent, uh, which is a cross um, with uh, native stock, and um, its parentage is Moscat d'Amborg. And then I made a, a red that uh, is parentage is from Pinot Noir, also a cross. And um, are you sort of obliged to use crossings there because of the climate? Um, well, I'm also I'm growing. I grow those, um, and I work with farmers who grow those. Um, yes, and because we know that they will grow well, and you will get beautiful fruit in our climate. But I'm also growing Riesling. I'm growing Blaufrankisch. I've planted a little bit of um, uh, Melon de Bourgogne. Uh, or Muscadet, um, the jury's still out on how those will do um, because they're really young. Um, and I, we did have a little bit of fruit off our Riesling this year, but not enough to, to make wine. It went into a blend, um, a wine by itself. But so we'll see. We'll but see. You told me originally you were making wine like in your bathtub. <laughs> yes, and I then did tell you that. Now you have a facility, but yes, it's kind of yeah. grown along each exactly, year. Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, as we, once we got licensed as a, as a winery to make wine officially um, that we could sell at the farm and at the restaurant, uh, we have a barn on the property that has a space now that's devoted. It's a cantina space um, that's relatively temperature controlled, but um, very, very uh, rudimentary. Um, I am making wine in, in a, <laughs> a very classic old-fashioned style. Um, another one of my mentors is Bruno Di Conchilis and uh, from Campania, and he had, um, when I first started uh, making the wine, he had said, "You know, here's your assignment. This is what you need to do. You need to make wine in the old-fashioned way, and afterwards you can decide what you want to do if you." And what are the specifics of that? What does that yeah, mean? Yeah, I mean, he told me. He said, "You gotta, you gotta obviously harvest by hand." You've got to destem and hand uh, sort. You have to crush by feet. Um, you have to um, 
you know, do your open vat fermentation um, and just do it just the way the old farmers did it um, without any use of technology, um, only using my palate, not, um, I mean, I, I was using something like a, a hydrometer to measure my alcohol content because I needed to do that, but that's as high tech as it got. Um, and that is still how I'm making wine and how I want to continue making wine. I mean, I think we'll, we are, are hoping to grow a little bit and we may not be able to, uh, I mean, we may invest eventually in a crusher to stemmer. Um, we may, uh, invest in, uh, a different kind of press. Um, you know, we use a basket press now, but, um, essentially I want to try and keep it as close to, uh, the sort of rudimentary old fashioned farmer style of making wine as I can. But you have taken on some complex types, like uh, you're making an orange wine yes. and sparkling yeah. wine, which yeah. are different ones. But yeah, I'm really excited about the the orange wine in particular. Um, I made that in 2011. I'm making it again in two th- from 2012, and I will continue making it. Um, I think it is a great way to express the La Crescent grape, which is highly aromatic. Um, I mean, La Crescent has a lot of versatility, I think. it. Um, when I first tasted it made by somebody else, I thought, oh, this is like Moscato d'Asti. I could make Moscato d'Asti from this. Um, I have also tasted it. Um, I'm making a dry white from it from 2012 that's a heck of a lot like Gruner. Um, that's the vintage, particular to the vintage. But um, I really loved the, the the orange wine methodology with it. So, and it we've, perhaps goes well with your food, with a little more exactly. bitter elements in the food. Exactly. And it kind of picks up yeah. on Yeah. And we've got, I mean, it goes beautifully with the cheeses. Because you do serve uh, these wines in your restaurant. Yes, I do. Um, and the orange wine has, I mean, one of the, the beautiful things about the, the fruit that we can grow in Vermont is that um, it has great acidity. Um, and I love acidity in wines. Um, one of my favorite whites is Riesling, which is why I'm hoping I can make wine from Riesling. Um, so, uh, you know, it's an orange wine. It has all that sort of texture and tannin color and uh, aromatics, but it also has great acidity, which still keeps it very fresh and bright. Um, so I think it's just I'm, I'm, I'm very happy with having sort of stumbled across um, that idea um, for for playing with that wine, um, and it just it it sort of seems that that's what the wine wants to be. That's what, how the wine wants to make itself into that kind of wine. Is it important to you to kind of let it do its thing that way? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I'm a non-interventionist uh, as much as possible. Um, so you know, and again, if I'm doing my job in the vineyard, um, then I am doing my job in the seller um, by just basically providing a clean space and uh, the process for making the wine. And then I let the wine do what it wants to do and kind of tell me what direction it wants to go in, Um, which is great because the wine knows a lot more than I do. (laughs) But it's not just your own wine that's available at the restaurant. You actually have a fairly broad list of Italian wines as well. I do, yes. Um, I... uh, have been developing, um, you know, an Italian, pretty much all Italian wine list for the last 16 years at the restaurant. Um, and uh, my original goal, 
you know, as my education increased, my original goal had been to kind of create a, a living library of the indigenous varietals of Italy. Okay. And and that's still very much my goal. Kind of heritage um, wines, like you heritage might have wines, heritage yeah. seeds. Exactly. Um, and regional varietals. You know, the food, uh, the recipes that we make are regional recipes. Um, and because we are growing very regional things, um, you know, I want the wine list to reflect that as well. So kind of like that wine that was bottled in the Pellegrino bottles. Exactly. That you exactly, had originally. Exactly. As opposed to yeah. kind of the bigger name from the bigger yeah, region. Yeah, yeah. So I look for really small producers um, who are working with, um, you know, little local varietals. Um, I mean, certainly I have, you know, beautiful Barolo and those kinds of things on the list, but I have a lot of things like Frieza and Barbarossa. And, Which you say um, quite well, by oh, the way. Thank you. Thank, <laughs> you may, thank you. You may say that better than yeah. anyone in America at oh, the moment. My goodness. It's not oh, often that uttered over here. I you know? don't know. Um, so, you know, I really kind of focus on, on those things. And also, I mean, certainly in my area, um, there's some great wine lists, but nobody else is doing that. So it's very much my niche and my thing. Um, and for me as a, as a wine director, on the floor, um, the nights at the restaurant, I, you know, it's about education too, educating people about what else there is out there. Um, and do you find that people are receptive to that? Yeah, they love it. Um, and it's it's a dialogue. I have a dialogue with them. We talk about what do you normally like to drink? What do you, uh, what are you ordering tonight? Um, are you adventurous? Are you are you feeling adventurous? Do you want something that's going to comfort you tonight? Um, and then we choose together, you know, something that they can have from the list that may be um, something very challenging or something that's more um, kind of homey and, uh, gee, I just really need to enjoy something and have something delicious and not think too much about it. Do you find that people are traveling to try the Rosolio that you offer, the more adventurous things that are harder to find in America? Yes, yeah. And people definitely come to try um, wine varietals from Italy that they've never had or heard of before. Um, so that's very exciting to me. Um, so, you know, and that's one part of my my idea for the wine list. The other part now that I'm a grower and a maker um, is that I'm very, I pay a lot of attention to how people work in the vineyards. Um, and I'm really focusing on people who, you know, are working organically or... So when you go to Italy, you kind of, yeah. as opposed to just tasting in the cellar, right. you kind of take a trip out to the vines and kind of see exactly. how that's working out there. Because exactly. a lot of people don't. A lot of people yeah. are like, hey, I'm going to come try your five wines, see you later. Right. But you're kind of right. walking around where it all starts. Absolutely. That is that is kind of the core part of a tasting that we do when we go to visit somebody in Italy. And, you know, a lot of that is for my own education because, again, I'm a self-taught wine grower. I'm not – I haven't gone to viticulture school. Um, I haven't studied enology um, except by the seat of my pants. So I am learning from everybody I go to visit whose wine I go to taste. We go out into the vineyard. We talk about pruning. We talk about um, their agricultural methods. We talk about um, <laughs> stinging nettle, you know, making tea from stinging nettle um, and what that's good for on the vines. Um, that's a really big component. And that's now translated to be a big component uh, on the wine list. And, you know, I, I'm... As you know, there's a lot of talk about um, a lot of various kinds of conversations about natural wine, and does that um, come up ever? 
Yeah, it does. And I mean, we talk, I talk about it all the time in the restaurant, but I've kind of um, started moving away from the term natural to naturalistic. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a great wine writer who writes for the Boston Globe, Stephen Muse, who um, he and I have had several discussions about natural wine and what it is. And, and he, I thought, had a really great way of thinking about the way people make wine or grow wine. And that it's like art and that there are different styles, you know, so there may be like a Fauvist style uh-huh. or a naturalistic style or, and I really liked that idea um, and have sort of um, co-opted that from him. I always want to give him credit. Um, and that's how I think about vit- the viticulture, that it's naturalistic um, because a grower might be biodynamic, they might be organic, um, they might put themselves in the natural camp or not, um, but they are working in a way that um, is about terroir, it's about landscape, it's about that vintage that year, it's about no chemicals, it's about low intervention in the cellar. Um, so all those things. They're making and some choices. They are making like some choices. Like you might choose to put red or blue in the corner of that, <laughs> yes. that kind of thing. Yes. But also, you know, in the Piemonte, it's like there's a lot of, you know, uh, old ways of agriculture. Like when you yeah. go to Boca and they trellis things really interestingly and kind of the way that they train them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So do, do you kind of pick that up as in the travels and kind of like, oh, that's interesting that they do it that yeah, way. Yeah, totally. And right now my own vineyard is um, <laughs> a uh, patchwork of different kinds of trellising. Of different Yeah. Um, I mean, with the, with the cold hardy varietals, they're you know they're they're teaching some things out of Cornell and out of the University of Vermont about um, and certainly the University of Minnesota how to best work with these varietals and um, people have um, you know been exploring and experimenting and examining ways that they think are the best ways to trellis or um, and we've been we've kind of gone off piste from that um, mostly because my education is a European education and uh, I'm responding to. Uh, my mentors who are planting in a very specific way or trellising or, or pruning in a specific way. And so I'm trying all those different kinds of ways to see how that La Crescent, how that Marquette, how those things will respond. Um, and that's been really interesting. you know. So we're doing everything from a single arm guillot to a goblet. Because um, you're not just making one wine from one grape. You are experimenting. And, a, and what we might think of as a fairly small vineyard surface. Yes. Like, yeah. you know, compared to globally, oh, like yeah. what people yeah. have. You know, yeah. hey, that's my 28 hectares right, or whatever. Right, You have a, yeah. you know, how how many hectares um, total right of now, vines? Right now it's a hectare. Um, and you're and making several different kinds of wine right. out of that that's hectare right. that's that right. are trellised and trained and different grape varieties. So yeah. there seems like experimentation is a, a calling card of what you're up to. It is. It is. And I mean, we're um, the Vermont as a wine region is so young, so everything is an experimentation. And, you know, I, as I mentioned, I work with a couple other farmers as well in the state. And, you know, most of them are doing, um, right now they're doing a, like a double arm sort of guillot style thing, which seems to work fairly well. Um, but I'm curious about these other ways. I think that, um, I, you know, what I'm doing and what I've been learning from the people that I go to visit in Italy um, or in France is that uh, what I want to do is I want to respond to the nature of the vine mm-hmm. um, and its growth habit. I mean, that's how people have figured out how to respond to Chardonnay or Nebbiolo in the locations where they grow them. So 
you know, that's what I'm trying to watch. What's the natural growth habit of Marquette, which is the red? Um, what is the natural growth habit of the La Crescent? And respond to that and prune and trellis it in a way that encourages it um, to grow uh, in a way that's beneficial. Does that plant. kind of mirror your own experience of just how you find your way in life? Like, <laughs> what do I enjoy doing? I yeah. really seem to be drawn to this. Yeah. Let me go more in that direction. That's and right. kind of analyzing right. that and yeah. writing it out. Yeah. Because you did kind of write it. And yeah. some of the writing I almost felt was like to yourself. Like, yes. this is what this meant to me. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's very and personal. Kind of and evocative, I yeah. thought. Some of the passages uh, in, you know, I mean, I, I I think you wrote the very best synopsis so far in English about visiting the nuns in the cloister oh, for Quinobium and yeah. talking with Gianpaolo Bea in, in Umbria on yeah. that project. I yeah. mean, where else could someone find that level of inf information oh, well, about that you. subject thank or you. going to get some Alcarmes uh, at the, the Medici uh, yeah, era yeah. pharmacy yeah. Uh, near the Duomo. I mean, yeah. uh, these are, you know, they're not stale pieces. They're quite wow. evocative. Thank what you. were some of those experiences like? Um, wow. Well, going to visit the nuns, um, that was amazing. Because they make wine in the cloister. They make wine in the cloister. So when we, when we, we had an appointment to, to meet with them, and I grew up Catholic. I'm not a practicing Catholic anymore, but I sort of forgot <laughs> what all that stuff means, you know, cloister. And so we arrive, and um, we get ushered into this um, little room uh, that essentially is like going to visit somebody in jail, uh, but it's a very beautiful jail. Um, there was uh, beautiful grill work between us and the two nuns that make the wine. Were they wearing jumpsuits? They were not wearing okay, jumpsuits. Okay, just double They were wearing their habits. <laughs> um, but, you know, so there's this beautiful iron grill work between you and them. Um, and you're a, not allowed inside. And you're not allowed inside. Because you're not part That's of That's right. So you're sitting on the secular side there, um, on the monastery side or convent side, and there's a little door um, in the, the grill work, in the iron work. They serve us coffee through the door, in this little beautiful tray of coffee. And we chat about, um, about the wines and uh, their methodology in the vineyard and um, what all of that is like and what it means to them. And then without even really thinking about it, I said, oh, well, is it possible to go see the vines and go to the cantina? We'd like to do that. And um, the two nuns, um, one is older, one is much younger, um, they kind of look at each other, and then they look at us, and they look at each other again, and then they look back to us, and they said, well, it's fairly quiet here today. I think it's all right for you to come into the cloister. That was nice of them. Yeah, really nice. Um and I know that they've allowed other, you know, non, they've allowed other secular people to come into the cloister. Um, but that's not usual that they do that. So we drove around the back and came in uh, and had this great little tour of their cantina and hanging out in the vines. And um, I had asked if we could take some photographs because um, I figured that that there was a protocol about that. So I asked if I could take some photographs and they said yes. And they were, they really didn't want photographs taken of them. Um, they were very shy about that. And there was one photograph that I desperately wanted to take and, and just couldn't because I felt like it was just wrong. But there was a nun in a blue habit, like the blue nun on the oh, okay. German wine, um, on a John Deere tractor, um, doing some work. And I thought that is, that's the best photograph ever. But, 
I didn't take it. It will remain a memory and a story instead. You were saying that Giampaolo Bea used to go there uh, to the cloister to meditate. They allowed outsiders to come. and Yeah, they, they do. They have a little, um, I forget what they call it, but they have a little house um, outside of the like cloister. Like a retreat. Oh, thank you, a retreat um, where you can um, stay. Um, for several days or and overnight, and they also have a dining room there, and they feed you. Um, and we had lunch there in the retreat and drank the Canovium uh, in unlabeled, which bottles. is the wine he makes for them. Yeah, because exactly. he's a winemaker yeah, as well. And that's then right. he was visiting right. them, and he was saying, "Hey, you guys grow vines. I make wine." Yeah, exactly. And he had um, a relative who had been a sister there. Which I is did how not know that. He, which is how he got that uh, connection um, and how he knew about them, and he. When he saw what they were doing um, with the vines and um, with the wine that they were making just for the church and for the local community um, in Vitorchiano there, because um, you can come and buy your wine there if you live in the village, um, like Sfuso, you know, you just get it out of the tank. Um, you know, he was like, wow, this is something really, really special. And I mean, his main thing was that I can help them... Um, uh, have a platform um, more to, than just communion. More than just the, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we and can reach a few more people. Exactly, because he's can, one of the most famous names in Central Italy exactly, for winemaking exactly. at the Palo Bea wine. Exactly, and and he thought, okay, well, I can help them get this wine out into the wider world and make some money for the cloister and for the good works that they're doing, and um, you know, it would be a really beneficial project for everybody. So that that's what he did, you know, by getting them importation and. Um, I mean, he basically just sort of lets them do what they think they should do. I mean, and, and it's a very, talk about naturalistic, it is a very, very naturalistic vineyard. Um, and uh, it's a vineyard, I mean, it's a vineyard that's run on faith, as you would expect, you know, faith that the, the fruit will be good that year and the fruit is what it will be and the wine is what it will be. And that's why that wine is so fascinating, vintage to vintage and so different vintage to vintage. Um, I mean, that wine has been um, a real inspiration for me, um, not only as a, as a sommelier, but as, as a wine grower. Um, because of that uh, variation from vintage to vintage, you really get that sense that it's, it is a portrait, a liquid portrait of that 365 days of that year, um, which I love. I mean, that's, that's why I want to make wine. You painted in words another portrait of uh, the pharmacy where the alchemist uh, recipe is still made yeah, today. Maybe yeah. you could say a little bit about that because that's still hard to find even in New York. Yeah, Santa Maria Novella um, in Florence. Um, they you you can find the the alchemist. I think they carried at Lafco. Um, oh yeah, and at the little um, there is a little Santa Maria Novella outlet here now. I think they just sell uh, expensive soap though. Okay, I'm, I'm pretty that, sure because be, we tried to track it to, down. Uh, at one time. Uh, yeah, I did yeah, try yeah, it sure, at I'm one sure time because they use it in baking, and a pastry yes, chef yes, exactly. guy I knew shared some with me. Yeah, but I, yeah. I don't think they have a liquor permit at the store uh, okay. here in New York. Here you know what I mean? York. Yes, I do know what you mean. Like every time I walk by, I'm like, yeah, you're like, oh, I'm looking in the window, and I'm like, is there anything but soap in there? There can. Is it in there? Well, at the place in Florence, they have not only the Alkermes, but they have like a whole wall of various kinds of liquori, liqueurs, um, you know, that are like the Centerbe or um, other kinds of infusions, um, you know, that were all created initially uh, medicinally out of the cloister. Again, we have a cloister. People thought it was going to help their health. Exactly. In in times of... uh, 
uh, disruption exactly. when you weren't feeling well. You weren't feeling well, and they had various um, herbs that would um, benefit you in various ways. So they, um, in, in order to uh, keep those herbs alive, essentially, um, after they were picked, they would steep them in the alcohol in order to preserve them. I mean, it started out as a preservative, um, but a mighty tasty preservative. So it's a way of keeping something that's very seasonal around the whole year. That's right. Exactly. Um, it's just like salting your prosciutto, you know, or, um, you know, putting things under oil, you know, to keep vegetables under oil for the year or in vinegar. But how far back did these recipes go? Oh, I mean, they go, they go far back. They go um, way, way, way back into Arabic culture, um, you know, probably farther back than we can imagine as soon as people, you know, started understanding that um, certain kinds of herbs had medicinal properties. You know, you take mint and, gee, my tummy felt kind of bad, but now my tummy feels better. So, you know, that started a long time ago. And then people... Um, you know, from the Middle Ages on, started codifying it, you know, started writing those kinds of recipes down. Um, and that largely came out of um, spiritual houses, you know, like convents and monasteries. And, um, you know, they were keeping gardens that specifically were for herbal medicine. And, um, it, you know, it's, uh, chartreuse was made as uh, an herbal medicine. Um you know, it wasn't until you get much later um, into like Campari that things were actually made for to drink as a cocktail at, at leisure. At, at, at leisure, exactly. But you talked in your book about not only having them by themselves, uh, which yeah. would seem you know like something you might do, but also blending them in with cocktails, which of course now very popular. But at yes. the time you wrote it in two thousand nine, yeah, uh, was still in its infancy. It was still sort of not happening. Really yet. not yeah. happening. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's been a really interesting way to introduce people um, to these really beautiful things that um, that are beautiful on their own, but um, are maybe uh, easier to get to know through a cocktail and through a very artistically made cocktail, um, because they really call for um, blending interesting things together. Um and then they make a whole new medicinal. <laughs> they have a whole new medicinal property um, to them when they're where, when they're in that great cocktail. So back to the restaurant uh, that you have in Vermont. Yeah. Uh, what is the scene like in in Vermont these days for restaurants and for wine in general? Um, very exciting. Um, we've got uh, a, a lot, as I was mentioning before, of great places that are are making some beautiful food. I mean, we have such a strong local philosophy um, in terms of the agriculture. And now that's being translated into the kitchens, the restaurant kitchens. Um, in the last five years, that has exploded. Um, farmers markets have exploded. Um, I mean, when we when we opened 16 years ago, um, it was hard to find local things. I mean, you might find a little farmer who maybe had an extra half a pig that he or she might sell you, but people weren't raising uh, meat or um, necessarily really growing vegetables. There weren't CSAs. There weren't. Um, there wasn't that kind of uh, agricultural community happening. And now it's like off the charts. Um, so that is very exciting that we have access to such beautiful food. 
um, you know, everything from, you know, pork to chicken to vegetables um, and now wine. Um, we have, there are about 22 licensed wineries, I think now, and 75 vineyards. Um, and of those 75 vineyards, um, you know, they're small, um, but the majority of them are planning to be licensed at some point. Um, they're just in the developing stages of getting them planted, getting the vines growing, and, you know, within the next five years, hope to be making wine. Um, so, so that's, that's exciting. Um, and you're seeing, seeing those wines on local wine lists. Um, and, you know, slowly we're starting to, um, show in places like Boston and New York. Um, there isn't... Uh, Your wines, the Lagaragista. Well, uh, uh, the, the Lagaragista wines, um, yes. I mean, I've, um done a couple tastings now down here in New York um, and we've got a couple slated for Boston um, with the plan that we'll eventually have some available here I mean again it's it's you know micro wineries so there's not a lot but we'll have we'll have just a little bit just so that people can start to experience and get interested because um, we feel like there's a there's a good story between the food and the wine that we have to tell from our landscape and, you know, want to get people excited about that in other places. And if people do happen to be in Woodstock, uh, where and when should they come find you? Because I know you have somewhat limited hours. Right. So we are generally open uh, Thursday through Sunday nights at the restaurant. Um, we are at the farm Monday, Tuesday. Well, we're at the farm every day, but um, we're specifically working there Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, the tasting room is open by appointment Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, so you can come and have a tour of the vineyard and um, taste wines. Um, you can also taste them at the restaurant. And what's the name of the restaurant? Uh, the restaurant is Osteria Pane e Salute. And Pane e Salute means bread and health. It's a toast um, that you would uh, perhaps say in Italy. And uh, it's actually, it was the name that we gave to the bakery. And we just kept it as we developed more into the restaurant. Um we uh, we stole a name from a little bakery in Arezzo, very close to where we lived in Italy, that was also called Panier Salute, which made beautiful, beautiful, very interesting breads. So you are writing another book as well. What's that about? Yes, I am. Um, uh, it's uh, huh, it's about naturalistic viticulture, and uh, it will be essentially a biography of our experimental vineyard. And the things that I'm learning as we go along and um, the work in the cellar. And then there will be portraits of my mentors um, or people who make wines that inspire me. So um, it'll be, uh, you know, both memoir, but also I hope some good, um, hard, fast uh, information uh, about how to work in the vineyard um, and things to think about and uh, explore um, if if people are interested in pursuing that because I think more and more people are um, which I think is really exciting are planting ten vines in their backyard garden you know to make a little home wine so you know we're really getting to that place where uh, there's that European culture do it yourself exactly exactly kind of info, like, you know become part of the thing exactly exactly um, but it'll be you know another m more stories more stories about the people and, and our place. Deidre Heakin was here today. She uh, is the restaurateur that is part of Pane Salute and also recently 
published a book, Libation, A Bitter Alchemy. Check her out online at her website or find her book in a bookstore. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.